listening to Living with ADHD and CPTSD, available on Apple and wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Living with ADHD and CPTSD. Today's episode, we are going to talk about socializing, then the problems that come up when we have CPTSD. It's actually something that a lot of people who have complex trauma and have dealt with it in the past and continue to struggle with it, always have or tend to have an issue with when it comes to being social and interacting with all types of people, whether it is strangers, friends, family members, or even loved ones like a husband or a wife. So I thought I would talk about this article, this subject in particular. I thought it would be a really good one to start off the second season. And I have a few different articles that have a lot of good information that I think would be very helpful and beneficial to you guys out in the audience. And then I will talk about my own social awkwardness that developed throughout my life into my adult years. So we're going to start off with this first article. It's called Why We Struggle Socializing with Complex PTSD. Recognizing the Symptoms and Gaining Self-Compassion. Survivors don't have time to ask, why me? For survivors, the only relevant question is, what now? I always start my more controversial articles with a gentle reminder that this may be emotionally triggering. Some topics like complex trauma will tend to stir up memories or emotions for some, myself included. Please understand, my intent is not to cause anyone stress, but to help shed light on the reality of a very real and often misunderstood disorder. The fact that I offer a trigger warning for these types of articles says it all. It's a reminder of what we have experienced, what we've survived, and how our lives are forever changed as a result. Is it a bad thing? Well, although I try to remain guardedly optimistic, The reality is that the effects of complex trauma are chronic, lifelong, and grossly misunderstood. It is about adjusting to our new normal, about understanding what we've endured so we can move forward one small step at a time in our personal empowerment. It becomes a daily task of walking away from those who blame the victim or who lack compassion for anyone who's experienced severe, prolonged, or chronic trauma. Getting to this place of empowerment when battling complex post-traumatic stress disorder, or CPTSD, is tough on a good day and can be damn near impossible on a bad day. So we learn to cope. We become kinder to ourselves and proud of our ability to adapt. We learn to recognize when our body is betraying us and we readjust accordingly. Fasting becomes a daily habit to prevent our stomach from tying in knots or causing us more gastrointestinal issues. We often learn that some foods are our enemy. Some foods will trigger discomfort, while others become staples on a short list. We love ourselves harder on the days that 
are harder. We learn to rock baggy clothes and a 60 pound weight loss as reminders of where we've been and what our body has been through. We learn to avoid the sun because we develop rashes and skin sensitivities at the drop of a hat. Aspirin becomes our best friend to dull the thump of another headache, yet triggers our stomach pain. We've had to fine tune the art of balance. We accept words like fibromyalgia, chronic trauma, and exhaustion as common in our vocabulary, yet we don't let them define who we are. We learn to run errands off the hours so that we don't during the off hours, excuse me, so that we don't have to people as much and we are happiest skipping out on parties or alcohol-infused get-togethers for a hot bath, a book, and some peace. Our phone is no longer used to answer calls. We eagerly push them through to voicemail to avoid having to chat. Conversation is exchanged for quiet reflection, journaling, or accessing our growing Kindle collection. We don't have a need to explain ourselves to others because superficial chit-chat triggers exhaustion faster than anything. Going to noisy gyms has been replaced with night jogs with our significant other or heading to a meditation sauna to relax, to purge, and to reconnect with our soul. We've chosen quality over quantity in our relationships. And we value our significant other as compassionate, understanding, authentic, and patient. Even our friends and family seem to know our need for space and either don't call us as much or have learned to text us instead. We ignore our emotional pain by tuning out, self-numbing, or band-aiding it. Physical pain is often less intrusive than the emotional pain we've carried with us, and so it sometimes goes unnoticed. We might... We may not be consciously aware of our body aches, or they may even act as a reminder that we're still alive. We've learned to live in a state of hyper alertness and that our sleep-wake schedule has taken a life of its own. We nap when needed, we slow down when our body tires, and we no longer push ourselves past our comfort zone. Our values have shifted and our faith in some have has faltered. Because of this, We've learned self-reliance and that a person's word doesn't mean half as much to us as do their actions. These are the realities of living with the effects of complex trauma. The irony is that many of us who are now choosing peace and quiet over distractions used to chase the very distractions we now run from. Many of us used to find ourselves as overly busy workaholics, overdoing it in school, juggling entirely too much on our plates, stuck in shallow or narcissistic relationships, tacking on more hobbies and constantly finding new ways to self-numb. Those of us who have been on both sides of the fence understand that complex trauma can have us numbing and avoiding for a week, a year, or a decade, only to become hypervigilant in seeking peace and quiet after the buzz from being emotionally numb wears off. We've learned that the grass is not greener living in distractions, and the longer we choose to numb our pain, the further removed we got from peace. To anyone unfamiliar with CPTSD, they may make bold assumptions that we're arrogant or haughty, shame or smear us for not making time to socialize. To anyone familiar with how the effects of complex trauma can affect us, they know differently. 
and they know otherwise. All right, that was the first article. So, here's a bit more. Um, so I'll continue going on with it. So, Dr. Judith Lewis Herman coined complex post-traumatic stress disorder CPTSD back in the 1990s when she was conducting her work at Harvard University. She noticed many patterns and similarities among her patients who were living with severe disorders of stress that didn't quite fit the bill for a formal diagnosis of PTSD or borderline personality disorder. She and Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, among other researchers, began examining certain populations and came to the realization these people were suffering from a more profound and chronic stress with origins in severe and prolonged child abuse, captivity, severe domestic abuse, or as prisoners of war. Since the 90s and Dr. Lewis Herman's groundbreaking work, there has been a plethora of research conducted on complex trauma. While it's still in its infancy and is not formally recognized in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, CPTSD is said to affect approximately 3.8% of Americans. Because of similar symptomologies as PTSD and BPD, many therapists are cautious about diagnosing CPTSD or may choose not to diagnose it. Similarly, because of these shared symptoms, CPTSD is often misdiagnosed as bipolar disorder, further adding to misconceptions between them. The struggle to socialize. Here's where we are getting into it. It's often cited that those who don't understand what complex trauma is or how it affects a person can be quick to dismiss them as crazy instead of looking at the reality of what that person experienced and are trying to move past. <clears throat> Some will be quick to jump on the bandwagon to smear us. Human nature tends to shun and alienate what we don't understand or what we haven't experienced firsthand. Instead of asking questions, there's judgment. Instead of support, there's shame. And instead of trying to understand, there's assumptions. Afraid you'll run into the person who traumatized you. Perhaps the biggest reason why those with CPTSD don't like socializing is because there's a risk of running into their tormentor. Adult children of abusive parents may have had to go gray rock with their caregivers to protect their emotions and their mental health. If they still live in close proximity to their abusive caregivers, there's a risk of bumping into them while running errands or just being out in public. Because the emotional triggers can be profound, to minimize the risk of dealing with an abusive caregiver or family member, we simply shut down and stay in. We wind up sending our significant other to the store or we opt for delivery. We take mental notes of our family member's schedule and we venture out when we know they're at home for the night. We may even relocate to start over a fresh start. It's not limited to family members or caregivers that are avoided. The reality is, if a person survived an overtly or covertly narcissistic, narcissistic relationship, the last thing any trauma survivor wants to do is run the risk of bumping into their ex and the person they were cheating with and discarded them for. We learn to avoid the shared places we used to go. We take the long way home from work to avoid familiar streets, and we ditch old favorite hangouts. 
After all, if a person battles narcissism, there's a solid chance they may take the new partner to the same shared locations. Intimate French restaurants, the mountains, romantic staycations, the beach, or day hikes. These places become a mix of happy memories and trauma where the traumatic memories trump any good times. Because CPTSD is a shame-based disorder, by the time a person finds themselves themselves in a narcissistic relationship as an adult, there is often a long-standing history of abuse and feelings of worthlessness in that person's life. They become an easy target for toxic relationships or those who don't have their best interests at heart. If a person battled severe child abuse where their basic needs for love, safety, and trust went unchecked, this puts them at an especially high risk in falling for idealization, further triggering feelings of shame. Never know what will trigger anger, tears, or numbing. A shared symptom between CPTSD and bipolar disorder is emotional dysregulation, which may include emotionally lashing out or emotionally numbing. With socializing, there's a gamut of potential problems. A random person may be wearing a shirt or cologne an abuser wore, which triggers an avalanche of fears. Of tears, excuse me. A lady in the supermarket Maybe on her phone and sound exactly like a toxic caregiver, triggering anger. Or we may hear a song on the radio that reminds us of when we believed an ex loved us instead of what was seen later on. These risks for emotional numbing or anger, tears, are what can keep a person with CPTSD at home. They may become more socially isolated as a result of their unprocessed emotions or may begin turning to further numbing, dissociation, as a way of trying to cope with feelings or experiences they would rather not deal with. Some become prisoners of their emotions where addictive behaviors are used to numb. For example, it is not uncommon to begin self-medicating with drugs or alcohol. However, addictions may also take on different behaviors. There may be addictions to sex, porn, working out, dangerous dieting, video gaming, or shopping as a way to numb and push away more vulnerable emotions. Needless to say, this can become a cycle in itself, where one mandate is used to cover up another wound. A sense of safety is gone. Safety and trust walk hand in hand. These are supposed to be taught as traits of consistency and predictability among our caregivers and our environment in childhood. It doesn't always work out this way. Adults who experienced severe or chronic abuse as kids weren't being taught safety or trust. They were being taught to duck and run and that no one and nothing is safe. This is what sets a person up for re-victimization in in adulthood as van der Kolk discusses. If our primary caregivers betrayed our sense of trust or safety, we can, and often do, unconsciously seek it out in our adult relationships because it's comfortable and familiar. We aren't noticing the relationship red flags. We are noticing how it feels ironically safe and even good. Yet, it's these cycles and patterns that may trigger further trauma later in life, further perpetuating the cycle. So, final thoughts. The thing is, when we're caught up in the aftermath of trauma, We're just trying to survive. We obsess on feeling, on feeling better, 
I'm feeling less, I'm feeling more, or I'm feeling different. I think this is backwards. When we've experienced severe trauma or are battling the effects of CPTSD, we need to start from ground zero. We need to relearn how to feel and how to reconnect our body back to our emotions while feeling safe. We need, to under, we need understanding and patience from those in our lives. Relearning and unlearning is a process. No, it doesn't happen overnight, but it can happen. So that's the first article. That one is actually not too bad. It gives you a bit of a nice rounding uh, explanation of the social issues when it comes to someone who has CPTSD and the difficulties that it can be uh, that can be there when it comes to being social and interacting with people. Okay, so the second article that I want to read is a little different. It's based on social awkwardness. So some similarities, but it has a lot of difference when it comes to our social issues that we deal with. All right, here we go. For those of us who grew up with abuse and neglect at home, it can be hard to know how to act in social situations. Here's an example. Have you ever been to a hotel where there is a person who is there to carry your bags? And even though you didn't ask, they carry your bags to the room and it's totally awkward. And you think, I'm supposed to give them a tip, right? I like see this on TV, but you don't have cash and they're just standing there. And you think, what do I do? What do I say? And instead of saying anything, you just say, okay, bye, and shut the door. And then feeling like a real asshole. Or maybe you're the person who carried the bags and you, you're not really supposed to ask for the tip. And there's some right amount of time to stand there. But if you have childhood PTSD and you're vulnerable to feeling shame and getting all dysregulated over this, just like the person who was supposed to give the tip, and then you get the door shut in your face, now we've got two people on either side of this door flooding with shame and not able to say a word. This kind of awkwardness happens all the time. But for those of us who experience trauma in childhood, the shame we feel in awkward social situations can make us collapse inside and want to flee and isolate from all people for all time. This is the third article and video in the isolation series, and it, all, it is all about social awkwardness and how to navigate it so we can gracefully handle awkward situations and avoid the need to isolate. So if you want to watch the video, I will post this link in the description of the podcast, and then you can decide to watch it. Okay, social awkwardness doesn't always go hand in hand with CPTSD, but early, child, early trauma puts such a huge dent in our confidence. In family homes where there was abuse or neglect or drugs or grinding poverty are not usually the greatest places to learn how to handle yourself with other people. So a lot of us end up having no idea how to act in challenging situations. Things like when you're in a formal environment or you've been accused of something you didn't do, or you happen to be in a room with someone famous, or you win a prize, or you lose a prize and you're expecting to congratulate the winner. Or when a family member says something really offensive. This stuff can be so fraught for us with CPTSD, and so many of us never get taught how you do this, how to deal with awkward situations gracefully, without shutting down or making a scene. 
And so this is one more reason why people with early childhood trauma have such a tendency to isolate, to withdraw from connection and relationships with people, even though they long for those things. It's one of the worst consequences of CPTSD. And if you don't turn it around, you could end up going deeper into isolation. Then whatever dodgy personality traits you may already have, isolation will only make them worse. Remember, isolation is not the same as periods of constructive solitude. Solitude can be calming, but ongoing isolation makes us deteriorate. We get weird. It's really important to break this cycle and learn again how to reconnect. Now, personally, I grew up with educated parents who themselves had been raised by polite and conscientious parents. And I learned to say please and thank you and all that. But because there was alcoholism, there was not a lot of attention given to us kids. We were inconsistently disciplined and rarely called out for rude or selfish behavior. I, was all, I also was missing a lot of basic skills in social behavior. I was 12 years old when I taught myself to use a knife and fork together. Until that time, I had a more intuitive way of eating that usually involved scooping up food with a spoon or a fork or my hand and tipping my head back while I chewed it so it didn't fall out while I ate with my mouth wide open. My siblings all did it. It was all we knew and no one minded. And it was only when I started to feel shame about my manners when I was at other people's homes that I tried to figure out how to act. But being neglected can bring out some ugly traits. The seriousness of the drug and alcohol problems in the family kept us all tangled up in chaos. And that situation, a kid kind of has to be selfish to get by. If you're not getting attention and praise, sometimes you might start to show off to others. I know I did. If you don't get treated fairly, you might become kind of pushy to get what you want, or arrogant, or sharp-tongued, or dismissive of others. And if you're not cared for when you're sick or your feelings are hurt, you might start talking about these hardships to anyone who will listen. So how can we teach ourselves to be more socially graceful? I used to read etiquette books, but if they're written by people from normal families, they kind of skip over these very elementary principles of where our learning has to start. My parents were pretty decent despite the chaos, but I got very little guidance on how to be. So starting in my teens, I sought out and connected with socially graceful people, and I wasn't usually courageous enough to ask for help, but I watched them. What to say, when it's appropriate to speak up, when to pull back, and what I've learned has helped me be less isolated, less limited to the company of other screwed up people, and more flexible to hang out with virtually any kind of person. That's what social grace is. It's having the choice to connect with a wide variety of people wherever you go. And remember, social grace doesn't mean you tolerate abuse or stand helplessly in danger. These guiding principles will help you to create a feeling of ease and welcome with people around you and to create the opportunity for more connection to blossom. One, be gentle with other people. Remember that they may be as sensitive as you are. Two, be trustworthy. People need to feel safe to grow closer to you. And three, be humble. Help others you feel your, to feel your respect for them by keeping at least half the focus on what they are saying and how they are feeling. Really paying attention to others not only makes them feel heard, but it will help you to learn to genuinely appreciate them. 
when you're in social situations, even as the many colors of your personality come to shine brighter, the art of being gentle, trustworthy, and humble will create a positive environment to, for connection to grow. You'll find doors opening for you socially, all around you, and into your life will come other socially graceful people whose company will feel excuse me, will feel so much kinder and more supportive than anything you had before. There we go. So that's that's a little more interesting in a way. Uh, definitely different than the first article. Okay. Well, I think the best thing to do at this point is to discuss my own issues when it comes to socializing and CPTSD and my awkwardness because I have had a lot and I struggle with it consistently. Um, some of the things that I, like the second article had, it's, it's actually very relatable because I grew up in a family, like, okay, I was, I wasn't neglected necessarily and, you know, I wasn't abused in to the degree that a lot of people are like I was I was overly disciplined obviously by someone who has a short temper and goes off the handle real easy and so that did traumatize me but I was a loved child and I did get my uh for the most part I get I got my needs met but I didn't learn a lot about social situations and social rules and how to deal with conflict and and things like you know unusual awkward situations that can come up when you're introduced to something that's a little unusual that you're not used to because you know as a kid if you don't have a lot of different friends like I didn't have you don't necessarily interact with a bunch of other people who have learned their own style and their own way uh, like for example the the dinner the eating a dinner kind of thing the only thing i remember being taught when i was a child um was well, that i can think of that always stood out was to keep my elbows off the table because when I was, when I'd sit at the table and I would eat, I often would put my, you know, I'd put my arms up and I'd put my elbows down on the table and my dad would always get upset at me for doing that. And he was always talking about how you're going to be at some other person's home or, you you know, you're going to have a girlfriend or, or, you know, one day and you're, and you're going to be having dinner with them and and you're going to do these really weird things that aren't appropriate and you're going to look really they're going to look down on you you know like it was like he was shaming me for the for the behavior and over time it eventually started to work and set in that I needed to to have proper table manners so there was that kind of thing but all like not having a lot of friends at all throughout my childhood and into my teenage years. And the only friends that I did have, we we kind it was very limited as to, as to what we did, of course. Like we were only into sports and playing video games 
and watching TV. So there wasn't a whole lot of range of things that we would do. And I don't think I really, on a regular basis, was ever over there having dinner. So there was no different kind of interaction. And I do remember growing up that I only learned certain behaviors and mannerisms from my family. I didn't really learn it at all from anybody else. So now having, now I'll go deeper into the CPTSD relating to social awkwardness and, and socializing. I, being so skeptical and, you know, not trusting people because I was, I was often unsure of how they would, you know, treat me and, and being lied to and being made fun of and tricked and teased and, and then, you know, always being, developing into someone who in order to avoid having uh, an overly aggressive disciplinary system, it developed into trying to avoid conflict and bad situations that would get people angry or upset with me, even if it wasn't like yelling and, and hitting or anything of that nature, like a violent type, but just having someone angry at me, I would, I learned to avoid things and avoid be certain behaviors and certain actions so that the, I wouldn't, it wouldn't occur, right? Like I wouldn't be scared and I wouldn't feel afraid, like deathly afraid to the point of, of completely avoiding it and leaving just because I was afraid that my behaviors or the things that I would do would be enough to cause that person or that group of people to, to, you know, be upset or, and then show to me their, the, a conflict. Basically I would avoid it. And so it, a lot of times it was causing me to not want to have any, to be involved in any social activities beyond like the odd people, like that person, right? Like maybe going to see a show or going to a sporting event. Um, a lot of times when I would be in a group of people, there really wouldn't be much at all said because I learned to just to have as to be as minimal as possible when it comes to talking to people because I kept thinking that I'm going to say something that is going to be determined to be stupid or weird or or like mean or hurtful or just you know and it was it was a, such a state that I was so afraid of of the of causing a problem that even though the odds were totally not you know like the likelihood of 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 something happening that was going to be bad was so small the the trauma from the my past was so significant in that situation that I would be convinced already before anything would occur or even the situation would happen that 
it would either be enough for me to not even bother to go, to just completely not do it, not even say anything. Um, I remember one time they were kind of going around and asking, um, like, if you'd like to go, you know, it'd be like getting a, a checklist, right, of, of people who want to go. Um, I think they were like asking things that you would want to bring. And I, it was so traumatizing and it bring back a, such a strong flashback that I wouldn't even hang around for that. I would completely just disappear. I would sneak out or find a way to get out of the room because I didn't even want to... The idea of someone coming up to me and and asking me about, you know, attending a party. Half of it, I think, was afraid, like I was afraid that they weren't even going to ask me and I was just avoiding the humiliation in front of people. And the other half was that it was so scary and so, it was so stressful, even if they were probably going to ask. I would feel so awkward and so, you know, like I said, so traumatized by it and so and so blended that I would just leave because I didn't want to go. It, I, I can't exactly explain. I just know that it is from childhood trauma that caused that sort of behavior. And I think a lot of it was just my understanding that if I left the room and I didn't stick around, then there would be no opportunity for them to, like I said, to dis, to reject me, even if they didn't say anything. Like even if they they didn't come up to me and and say you're not going, haha, and if they just ignored me and went to all the other people and didn't come to me, then I wouldn't I wouldn't have to face the eyes and the laughter and the and the the oh he's such a loser comments and the and the quiet you know chatter because i always felt like people were were looking at me and and kind of snickering and like so haha he didn't get invited he's such a loser he's you know he has no friends all that kind of crap so that was it was just easier to to not be there and to not even bother and i think i remember a few times in the future, like later on that day or maybe a couple of days later, that the person would come by and said, I I didn't see you. I wasn't able to say anything to you. I was I was going to invite you or, or ask you to come. And because I was so convinced, right, or I was so scared about it and it was so awkward and socially stressful and overwhelming that I I just would leave preemptively, right? I was making assumptions based on stuff that had happened in the past. And the, the sad part is, is that in earlier in that time frame, before I was making these kind of decisions already, there were a few times where that kind of thing did happen, where everybody else got an invite or a, a party invitation or something that was indicating that they were welcome to come and then I didn't get anything. And so that was pretty embarrassing and really sad, like made me really upset. And 
it only takes a couple times before you just automatically go, well, they're not going to invite me. So I'm not even going to bother hanging out. So there, see, there, there you go. Like it got so serious that I just didn't even bother staying around because I already had this presumptuous feeling and belief that I don't want to get embarrassed. I don't want to be humiliated in front of people. So I'm just going to avoid the, giving them the opportunity to do so. And to be honest, there, there are sometimes today, like this, this, what I was talking about was happening during my school years. So I was, I think early, well, I was in school at six, all the way up to 18. So for 12 years at that earlier time for, so a number of decades ago, this was occurring. And even recently, it doesn't happen a lot, but there are situations where I subconsciously automatically do not decide or I don't even bother to, to go to things. Um, a lot of times it's easier just to not say anything at all, not send a, a, a decline or say no or anything. I just don't even... It's like I, if I pretend or I, I try to be invisible, it will feel better and feel less stressful and less awkward than if I say something. Or knowing that going to it will be extremely overwhelming and too much, so I'm just not going to bother. It's difficult. I, I have often not... I think it's like 90% time, maybe higher, where when I was by myself or on my own and there was something to go and do, I would rarely ever, ever go. I would automatically just feel overwhelmed and awkward and it, like I'd have no self-confidence in myself to be able to think that it would be any fun because I would be, I wouldn't... I'd be completely socially awkward. I wouldn't talk to anyone. You know, like I was just avoiding the humiliation and giving further proof, even if it was to strangers, which is I know is ridiculous. To even to strangers, I would I would never give them opportunities to to see that I was a socially awkward and, uh, and a, to even some degree anti antisocial person. And it was just because of my trauma and from growing up, not ever having friends and always getting to the point where feeling that they're not going to want to do it, have anything to do with me. They're going to, they're not going to like me. They're not going to want to talk to me. And if I open my mouth and say anything, then I'm just going to further into like reintegrate the fact and the truth that I'm stupid or an idiot or I, or I sound dumb. And it was just easier to not do it. And it's, you know, there's a lot of regrets and a lot of bad feelings that come from that because I, I know I wasted a lot of opportunities in my life, in my past, for situations and social appearances that if I had been able to gain the courage enough to do it, I could have had a lot more fun. And who knows? I might have I might have made some good friends. I might have 
had a lot more experiences that could have helped me in my future life to, you know, today it's, but you can't, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to learn. You have to forgive yourself. You have to try and move on and tell yourself that it's okay. You know, like you had, I had trauma. I was, I was dealing with childhood, you know, CPTSD that was getting in the way of, of allowing myself to, to go out and, and interact with people, to have fun, to trust myself or to trust others that I'm around because I was deathly scared of, of being humiliated and laughed at and made fun of or hated. And, you know, like one of the worst feelings that I ever experienced and I, and I did experience it a number of times was completely being rejected or ignored. And when, you know, making, taking a bold step and asking like someone to, like a girl to dance or, or trying to, expecting something from them. Cause you know, they're giving all these people a card or they're giving these like something cool and they pass you by and nothing happens and you feel hurt and rejected and humiliated and it it really ruins you it 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 forever leaves a mark because you you don't like to feel left out and when other people look at you and are they may not be laughing on the outside but you can tell by the looks and by the by the reactions that they're having that they think they either are saying, Oh, poor you. Like they're like, they're, they're feeling sorry for you or they're laughing from the inside at you because this poor schmuck is, doesn't deserve it. Or he's, he's a, a, a loser or a nobody. So he doesn't deserve to get the same sort of treatment or special, you know, gift or whatever from someone that everybody else got. And that really does stay with you with throughout your life because you have situations as an adult that aren't like your childhood or aren't like your teenage years, but because of your trauma and those flashbacks that you're experiencing when a situation very similar to your past comes up, you're automatically triggered and you're you're thinking right right then and there that it's the same thing that you're going to have the same experiences that, that this person that you don't even know or this group that you're hanging out with is automatically not going to like you they're not going to want to be with you you know they think you're going to that you're stupid so you're you're automatically making these presumptions and it's it's preventing you from having any chance or any ability at breaking out of that uh, past mold that formed you and experiencing something fun or new or showing yourself that the past is the past. If, you're, if your trauma is so hard and so heavy on you, it really makes it difficult for you to experience something different and something new and learn that these this is a good thing and that you're not going to have the same experiences as you did when you were 12. It's one of those things that unless you're extremely talented and very smart and 
extremely brave and strong, you're likely going to need professional help in order to help yourself get past that so that the next time a person wants to invite you to do something, you're not going to feel afraid or you're not going to automatically think that they're going to they're they're going to make fun of you or reject you or pass you over, right? It it takes a lot of hard work to get there. Okay. Well, that's it for this episode uh, about socializing and social awkwardness. So if this was a, an episode that you really enjoyed listening to, um, please give it a good rating on your platform that you're listening on. And if you have any comments uh, about this episode or about other episodes, there are a number of ways that you can contact me. You can contact me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at ADHD and CPTSD. You can email me. Uh, the email address is livingwithadhdandcptsd at gmail.com. Or you can go to the website and then you can contact me through that. It's www.livingwithadhdandcptsd.ca. If you are really into my shows and you would love to be a member with special um, privileges and rewards, then go to my Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash living with ADHD and CPTSD. If you sign up, you get early access to all new episodes. You get exclusive access to all the bonus material that I have created. Plus, if you become a loyalty member, you will, for every three months that you remember, you will get a new merchandise item. You will get a sticker. You'll get a, a neat coffee mug a t-shirt, and then at the end, a hoodie, which all have my logos on it. And it's a great way to help support the show and, you know, provide support to those people that you that you know and wear my, wear my garments and then they can, you know, it, it creates interest and it also shows that you are supporting my show. And... If you want to donate instead, you can go to ko-fi.com, uh, ko-fi.com slash living with ADHD and CPTSD, and you can make a donation there. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I shall talk to you next week. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.